we need to go beyond treating everybody the same, which as lovely, kind fundraisers we are, we almost want this utopia and everybody is treated lovely and equal. What we tend to do by having this one-size-fits-all approach is we lower the standard for everyone rather than maybe excelling for, for these top people. The worst example I ever found was a donor who'd given 50p once and they'd sent an average of eight to ten mailings to this donor every year over eight years so this person had had 70 mailings say a pound per mailing roughly they'd lost what 60 70 pound on this this one supporter how do you highlight those people who've got the best potential and how do you then put in place the relationship management for those top 20 percent Welcome to episode 133 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. My name's Rob Woods, and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising who wants some ideas and maybe a nudge of inspiration to help you raise more money and really enjoy your job. This time, we're looking at ways to take advantage of the powerful truth that in any group of people, be they supporters or customers, your potential results will always be heavily skewed within the group. That is, your actions just won't affect everyone equally. This is an idea explained in the excellent book, The 80-20 Principle by Richard Koch, which is all about the various ways you can take advantage of this so-called Pareto law. I've found that the more you get your head around this idea, you can deliberately look for how it applies in any group of donors, major supporters, or event participants, and use it as a way to prioritize precious resources and increase income. It's one of the many powerful ideas we use in our corporate partnerships and major gifts mastery programs. But today, I wanted to explore ways you can apply it in the field of individual giving. To help me, I was really pleased to talk to the brilliant individual giving specialist, Craig Linton. Craig, also known as the fundraising detective, is a trainer, consultant and author with 20 years experience in fundraising. In the interview, Craig explains that we'll raise more money if we make sure that we don't treat everybody equally and he offers several techniques for how to do this in practice. I hope you find it helpful. Hey, Craig, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks, Rob. Lovely to see you as always. Yeah, thank you so much for making time for another of these chats for the podcast listeners. And you and I have had lots of conversations over the years, and I always love our chats, especially when you help me how to see certain fundraising principles in the context of successful individual giving practice. And today I really wanted to look at this notion of 80-20 principle, as in sometimes it's called the Pareto law. I recently read a book called the 80-20 principle by Richard Koch. And it really, I found it so interesting because for many years, people have been talking about, we've got to kind of apply the 20% idea, 80-20 principle, and I never really uh, found ways to effectively apply it really as deliberately as Richard Koch teaches in the book. But ultimately, he has helped me understand that in life, it's so rare that all things are equal. It's so rare that, you know, a company gets profit evenly distributed from all of its customers. Very few of our listeners wear all of their wardrobe as much as the other bits of their wardrobe, almost certainly they wear 20% of their clothes, 80% of the time, and so on and so on. And you were telling me the other day that the same is true of a typical donor file of people supporting a particular cause, 
at five or 10 pounds a month or so. And you're saying not all of those supporters are equal in terms of how they feel about your cause and their ability to give, for instance. So for years, one of the ways you help a charity improve its individual giving results is through a prioritization and a knowing that uh, certain donors or certain activities for certain donors are much more valuable and worth making time for than trying to do things fairly for everybody. So I'd love a chat about that kind of idea of, of how we do it in practice. But I wanted to, to start because the other day you mentioned a particular example in your own giving where this came out. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really good introduction, Rob, around this idea of we need to go beyond treating everybody the same, which which as lovely, kind fundraisers we are, we almost want this utopia and everybody is treated lovely and equal. But actually, reality of day-to-day life is, is somewhat different. And what we tend to do by having this one-size-fits-all approach is we lower the standard for everyone rather than maybe excelling for, for these top. And it was really brought home to me a couple of years ago. I had a you could say, lucky run, really, where I ended up making three donations to three different hospices in the space of about six, seven months. And the first donation was a friend of my parents. So I'd known them for, for a long time, hadn't seen them for about 10, 15 years, but they sadly died at their local hospice they live a long way from where I do they've moved away from where my parents live so I had no real connection to this hospice but we made a a donation to the hospice because that's what the family had asked for and it was just our way instead of flowers to give so we did that and got the standard thank you back and, and and things and then a few months later sadly a close friend of mine his wife had um, an aggressive form of breast cancer. She died in her early 40s. She had three young kids. You know, real tearjerker. It's still, I still get a bit emotional uh, when I mention it. And he actually raised uh, quite a bit of money for his local hospice. And obviously, we all got involved. They actually had a party before she died where they raised lots of money um, for the hospice. And then there was money collected in memory at the funeral and obviously as you can imagine closer connection closer to me I give quite a bit more to that hospice than I did to to the first one and then a few months after that unfortunately my dad died and we as a family received amazing care from from our local hospice where I grew up uh, he was in there for a long time back and forward and you know the staff can't can't speak highly enough of them they were, they were incredible and we raised over three and a half thousand pounds as a as a family and now friends and, and networks and we'd have done anything for this hospice in that moment and that time and said that to them and said if there's anything we can do to help please let us know so biggest donation I've ever made as an individual my brothers and my mum, exactly the same. So you think just instinctively, me telling you those three examples, that I would get probably a different experience from each hospice. Yet the reality was I got exactly the same experience from all three. I got a standard thank you letter. That was email. I think only one of the three actually sent me a physical thank you as well. And as a fundraiser and as, as someone who's curious, I always opt into everything and I give my permission for everything because I want to see what happens just, just with my professional hat on. And then 
then nothing. The following Christmas, we've got a Lights of Love invite, which is a, a common event to, to remember for, for hospices. We've got some appeals during the year and some newsletters. None of it personalised. None of it mentioning the connection or why we give. And um, all that goodwill and all that willingness to, to help and, and probably that could have been channeled. And certainly in the case of my friend, as a friendship group, if he just said, well, we all, I don't know, climb Snowden together, do some sort of fundraiser, the hospice could have gone on and raised a huge amount of money. Same with my dad. If, you know, if we'd have been asked in the right way, in the right opportunity, there's probably a five-figure sum in terms of lifetime value to, to be had. And instead, that goodwill just dissipated through this just one-size-fits-all, very impersonal experience. And it really brought home to me that we need to do better than that. We need to tailor our experiences and our relationship management, depending on the ability and the capacity for people to give. And how do you mark that on your CRM? How do you highlight those people who've got the best potential? And how do you then put in place the relationship management for those top 20% applying that Pareto principle to, to your file? So it was a really interesting experience and tinged with sadness in a way as well, because great causes that actually if if they just reached out a bit more, a bit more personal or picked up the phone, then all those things that you and I have talked talk about many times, they probably left thousands of pounds on the table by not doing that. And when you repeat that over and over again with all hundreds and thousands of families who are doing this every year, that's a lot of money we're potentially leaving on the table as fundraisers. Yeah. And it's not only the leaving of the money on the table, which could make quite a lot more difference to relieve suffering, but it's also from the point of view of the supporter, in a way, it's letting them down because it sounds to me like it would be even more emotionally satisfying to continue that relationship and carry on making a difference. For instance, in gratitude for the care of your dad and in honour of your dad, you'd actually enjoy doing more. And yet so often internally, we can justify, oh, no, we mustn't ask more because they've already done enough. And that often internally we can, without genuinely getting the point of view of the supporter, we can put, impose our own judgment on what is or is not appropriate or would or would not be willingly undertaken by the supporter. And so that lack of insight it closes down something that actually would have been good for your family. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and it's done, I think, from a good place and a place from wanting not to cause upset or not to, to offend, but this paternalistic attitude that we maybe know best or, you know, well, we can't get in touch with them because of X, Y, Z, I think can be really damaging. And I think it's about, again, understanding and reaching out and finding out and asking people. People are very willing to share and, and, and tell their stories. And if you get in touch and ask in the right way, often I hear GDPR used as an excuse not to do this, or, well, GDPR means we can't do this or we can't do that. And actually, there's nothing in GDPR in itself that would stop anybody using my dad's name or how much we've raised or whatever. Your own personal data policies at your charity may stop it, but there's nothing within the regulations that should stop you capturing the relationship and the, the the money raised and things. And the there is some stuff around patient confidentiality that you need to be careful on, but there are hoops that can be overcome that, that shouldn't act as barriers 
whether you're a hospice or a medical charity um, or, or other good cause that stops you from being able to, to, to deliver and build those stronger relationships with that 20% at the top through the Pareto principle? I guess my starting point is it's not necessarily easy. We shouldn't underestimate. There's reasons why the one size fits all is likely to be the default. But I wonder if in this chat you could tell us two or three tools or ideas or concepts that our listeners, if they see this point and they want to make progress in this direction, they might use for their own decision making and or to frame with other decision makers to get better at treating certain donors differently and therefore all this reward both in income and doing right by what the supporter really wanted. Yeah, absolutely. So some of it comes down to supporter journeys and make sure you're asking and capturing data. But I think there's some other tools before you get into that to think about and consider. Classic, when I first started fundraising, you know, the donor pyramid was one of the first things you, you taught as a fundraiser and this idea that people step up to ultimately they leave a legacy. I think the thinking's evolved and, and moved on a little bit since those days. And the donor pyramid is, is I, think, I still think it's an interesting concept, but I think we need to be a little bit more sophisticated than that in that relationships aren't this incremental step up, 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 up. But I think it's a good way to think about it. Who's at the top of your pyramid and why are they there? And who? how do you identify that 20%? And obviously, a lot of that's going to be financial, but it might be due to the connection or it might be through the, the commitment that someone has to the cause or the length of time that they've been given to you or how often they give. I would argue someone who's given £10 20 times over a five, 10-year period is probably more valuable than somebody who give a £100 once five years ago. They're probably going to get the same experience. So how do you start looking at, well, who are those those top people. A model that I prefer that I think is really good is that there's a great fundraiser called Sarah Clifton, and she developed this almost like cycle, the donor lifetime cycle, which I think is more helpful of thinking as people move through their cycle of giving and their lifetime of giving, that it's not necessarily stepped on a pyramid, but it's more this continuous increase in commitment and loyalty, which then maybe takes people through to, to that legacy giving. So one of the things, the interesting things with the life cycle map is it's not about the size of the gift. It's about the length of time someone's been given. So the different stages would be obviously their first gift, whatever that might be. And then one of the hardest things in fundraising, we know, is getting the second gift. And then hopefully once they've made that second gift, they'll go on to multi-years of, of giving and, and committed giving and maybe start a regular gift. Then there may be at some point be this stretch gift or, or bigger gift and major gift would be different to you and I, to a billionaire, to, uh, you know, a pet, so a major gift for you as the individual and then the cycle finishes with a legacy gift, hopefully. So it, it's not about the value, it's where you are in your longevity of giving, which I think is a nicer way to think about it because it, it gets you thinking about relationships and how do you get people giving year after year after year through your stewardship, through your relationship management, through your communications and also understanding why people give because I think that's an important part of, of this that we we overlook and need to bring into it when we're trying to look for our top 20% is how do we group them what are the motivations and how do we then use combine the data with the 
human insight to to create these really great experiences and fundraising asks and appeals and campaigns. Yeah, and that's a key point, isn't it? Because in that first story you gave a bit earlier at the beginning of this chat, if the organisations, especially the third organisation, had understood what your motivation was and why that was so strong and passionate, I think it's really unlikely that they would have had a one-size-fits-all for you, even if they needed to give a lower resource thing for someone else, your why for your dad would have leapt out at them, wouldn't it? Exactly. And, and I think also the other interesting point, and again, I'm probably going slightly off topic, so pull me back if I go down too, too much of a rabbit hole. But what my mum needed is different to what I did, which is different to my brothers, because we all grieve in different ways. We all have different ways we like to express that. So I would be someone who'd want to do something a bit more out there and active. My mum would want would love a name on a bench, you know, that that would mean the world to her. Whereas my brothers would they don't one of them certainly wouldn't want to talk about it and would, would be a closed book and would be really hard to engage. So again, even though we'd all do more in the right circumstances, understanding how we all want to engage and having a range of offers and products that are tailored to to different types of personalities and and how we like to give, again, just really enhances the the experience and the the likelihood of of giving more. Hey there, it's Rob, and I wanted to quickly let you know about our two flagship training programs. That's the Major Gifts Mastery Program and the Corporate Partnerships Mastery Program to give you a sense of the difference they can make. Here's a really quick bit of feedback we received recently from Asia Parekh, who took part in our most recent Corporate Mastery Program. This is my first corporate fundraising position. I, I've never corporate fundraised before. I rely quite heavily on the things that Rob taught. Since being on the programme, the charity has managed to turn over 10 partnerships. We started off with one. While I was on the course with Rob, that one turned into six, and now it's turned into 10. For the charity, the partnerships are worth around £10,000 each, and at 10, we have a total of £100,000 coming in. I would really, really recommend the programme. Absolutely do it. It's worth every penny, and I'm really, really grateful for having been on it. If you'd like to find out more about either of these two programs, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. For now, though, let's get back to the interview. I know that there's another key model that you find really useful in lots of situations, that three factors there that help you make decisions if one needs to segment with a particular group. What are those three and how do you use them? Yeah, so again, so classic marketing analysis approach is, is something called recency, frequency, value. So when was the last time someone gave? How often have they given? And what is the value? And when you put the people into these groups, it really shows the Pareto principle in action because what, what you end up with, unfortunately, is a big cohort down here who gave once, haven't given for two years, maybe give £20 or less. And then you've got this, this little group at the top who've, given for 10 years, given thousands of pounds in total and given like 20, 40 or even 50 times. And it's the people here that that we really want to be doing on. But what you find, certainly in an individual giving file, a lot of people will, a lot of organisations, charities, strip out the major gifts. So we'll exclude the, the potential major donors. We're talking about... Um, individual giving files here of, of people giving small regular amounts, either 
through appeals or through regular gifts, but it's about identifying those within that overall cash file who have got that potential and are not the ones down at the bottom. So I think what happens is that you're all lumped into that group and everyone's treated the same. And that's the experience I've had with those three hospices. The value part, which is an important one, was higher for, for one of them versus the other. The frequency has ended up the same. And I've yeah, I've still received exactly the same comm cycle from all three and, and still receiving things from all three, even though now the one who I only give, I think, £25, I've had three years of five or six mailings a year and will never give again because I don't really know the hospice. It's not in my area. Whereas the other two, I could still potentially give again if they got the the ask right. And lots of organisations, this doesn't just apply to, to hospices, this applies to, to, to all charities. You will have this cohort who have the potential to, to provide that 80% that aren't getting the tailored experience and the the extra little bit of love and attention that that they deserve. And there's probably, and this is quite scary for fundraisers, and fundraisers always, I always get that, oh, Craig, are you sure on it? There's a group of supporters who probably given once, not given for a few years and given a relatively small, who you should actually be brave enough to say, you know what, we're not going to spend any more time or money on these because we've done the analysis and actually we're losing quite a lot of money on this on the odd chance that one of them may may come good yeah just to bring that to life did you tell me the other day you know of one charity where someone had given 50p years ago yeah the worst example i ever found was a charity a donor who'd given 50p once and they'd sent an average of eight to ten mailings to this donor every year over eight years so this person had had 70 mailings say a pound per mailing Roughly, they'd lost what sixty, seventy pound on this this one supporter by just not having that that approach of okay, they're probably not going to to go on to do anything. Yeah, well, that's a really good example to have ringing in our ears, though, isn't it? To get our attention, maybe not as extreme, but some version of that loss could be happening for some of the charities listening here. A need to thoroughly look at and make sure that that's not happening. And in terms of that other cohort, if we apply this three element model do you have any tips for just getting on with that analysis and taking action yeah i mean the good thing is nearly every crm you should be able to get the report from them even if you just have to get the raw data out of everybody who's donated in the period and then use some formula to to do it it's not a particularly complicated formula you need to use to to do it but then just look at them you know look at that group and well what else might we do for them one good example is often legacy events or major donor events ignore this cohort of really long-term loyal supporters and actually when you see someone's been given like i said for 10 years plus and cumulatively ends up giving quite a lot of money and you know they're going to be really committed and there'll be a story there about why they've given for so long start talking to them inviting them in and and thinking about how you engage them further have the discussions and and talk to these supporters about why do they support and what was it that keeps them giving year after year and why are they and just that curious fundraiser and that interested fundraiser the time you put into those people with the, the top rfv scores it's going to be time really well spent because they're the ones who are then going to go on to make the legacy pledges who might just be willing and able to give a major gift and who are probably going to be real ambassadors and advocates for your cause so rfv isn't 
the be all end all, but it's a, a, an entry point and a starting point to make those connections and build those relationships. I think if you can't do the full analysis, who who are the people who are given five years in a row? Who are the people who give every Christmas? Who are the ones who've you know consistently? cumulatively given over £500, but you don't realise it because it just adds up. And what can we do different to to show them that we've noticed and that we've cared? And I know you always tell the story, our friend Rachel Honeybun, she applied that. But that was the Pareto principle in a way that she took that cohort of supporters, the top people who'd done something different, did something special for them. And lo and behold, what happened, they give a lot more money the following year because of it. Yeah. I guess for our listeners, it might seem overwhelming with few resources if there are 60, 70, 80 in that list. Oh, well, we can't talk to all of them. Okay. But even within that, you could do 80, 20 principle and just pick six. Yeah. Pick three to call tomorrow and yeah. just find one a week. Just... One a week and you've done 50 in the year and, you know, yeah. it's a step forward. Yeah. And, and within that aid, that could be the thank you call. But equally, there could be a deliberate insight gathering approach of three questions you try to ask all of them and it's almost certain that you will gain some really interesting insight as to what's their kind of why and what kind of messages they like most about what you serve that can further hone and help you improve to better serve them in future communication and you can use that insight and those stories that you gather to try and find more people like them as well to, to, so you're getting the right people in the next cohort of supporters and, and people who were probably going to give for a long time rather than one-off um, supporters. Yeah. And if there's so much more reward in going the extra mile for a few, then what could you do more creatively? It may not be efficient, but you can afford to take some risks, do some special things make it more bespoke or creative for those ones. And in the past, you and I have called that idea creating wow moments. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the the kinds of things that fundraisers can do, not for everybody, but once you've identified that segment, that top 10 or 20%? Yeah, for example, it's not individual giving, but one of my clients at the minute or just in a, a, a challenge event, you know, virtual challenge. And we looked at who were the top for early on. We knew the people who had started fundraising and who were the ones were going to be our 20%. And Pareto's played out exactly with this group, you know, 80% of our incomes come from the, the top 20 fundraisers. So we said, yes, we automated the stuff for, for people. So people still had a really nice experience regardless. They got messages. But we said we're going to focus our stewardship on those people at the top. And we did things like we did some personal videos. We've done some outreach work. We highlighted, look, you're one of our top 10 or top 20 supporters here. You know, it made people feel really good about it. And actually, they've accelerated away from the rest. And so putting that extra time and money in those people who got started and seen really keen and committed has has really paid off because they've gone instead of raising 500 they raised a thousand whereas the ones who we've done the same at the bottom might have gone from 10 to 40 and all right that's a bigger percentage increase but actually overall the increase was by putting making it easy and, and joyful for 
the people who were who got off to a great start to to really continue. So it's it's all the things that we always talk about, and it still amazes me that you know after doing this for over twenty years now, we still have to talk about doing great thank yous and you know the handwritten cards that all the research shows how much people appreciate them and how it increases giving in the year afterwards, the picking up the phone. Just people want to be recognised, they want to feel good, want to feel special. There's lots of tactics and ways to to do that. Um, And if you can't do it for everyone, and I'd argue you probably shouldn't do it for everyone, use the Pareto principle to find where to start and just begin trying to do those little extras and and speak to your supporters and just make them feel really good about giving. Yeah. So Craig, thank you ever so much for sharing these ideas of how to apply the 80-20 principle to individual giving and some other areas of fundraising. I really appreciate it. Until the next time, thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed these ideas about ways to focus our efforts and create the most value we can. I've put a full transcript and some brief notes in the podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. And if you're not yet following the Fundraising Brightspot show, please hit that button now so that you don't miss out on any of the episodes we've got coming up. Now, if you're a major donor or a corporate fundraiser and you need to grow income this year, then do check out our two flagship programs designed to do just that. That's the Major Gifts Mastery Program and the Corporate Mastery Program. Both courses start again from November 2023 and run for six months. We're so sure of the impact they have for fundraisers that if you're not delighted at the end of day one, I'll give you all your money back. And on top of that, I'll donate £500 to your charity. So really, you can't lose. The risk is all on me. To find out more, head over to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. Just before we finish, I'd like to ask a quick favour, which is if you enjoyed today's episode and you think it would help other people, then please take a moment to share it on with your team or on social media. I really appreciate your help in getting these ideas out to as many charities as possible. Craig and I would love to know what you think about today's episode. You can get in touch or tag Craig or I on LinkedIn. And on Twitter, he is at FRDetective and I am at Woods underscore Rob. Thanks for listening today. Best of luck using the 80-20 principle to prioritise your efforts. And I look forward to sharing more Bright Spot insights with you very soon. Bye.